0: Uh, All right, so I have asked Ellie uh, Hubbard to read our scripture today, which is on the back panel of your handout today, if you want to follow along. And I assured uh, our reader from the early service who was worried about mispronouncing things, I said, if you mispronounce things, that's fine. We'll just laugh at you. So, anyway, (laughs) go for it, Ellie, no pressure.
1: (laughs) Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out Two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But If any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil.
0: Thank you, Ellie. Beautifully done. You have such a rich voice. Well done. So uh, what I want to do with you is just share some of my reflections uh, with this, and I've kind of changed how I do this uh, section. I want it to be less uh, talking head, talking to you, and a little bit more interactive, a little bit more conversational. Uh, You can, uh, by the way, follow along uh, on the lectionary if you ever want to do some Uh, pre-reading about what's coming up uh, on the next Sunday, just Google search lectionary and uh, it'll probably take you to Vanderbilt University's website and you can dial in uh, what's coming up for this week or next week or whatever week you want and it will uh, take you right to it. Uh, But my encouragement to you uh, is to make the most of one week's text in particular um, again and again and again every day. So Like this one, I would highly recommend that you spend just a few minutes every day, put this in front of your Wheaties uh, at breakfast, just read the passage and just sit with it every day and just see what comes up. And if you really want to take it the next step, then have a journal. So scribble down a thing. And what you will find over time is that different things will emerge. Uh, That's how the spirit of God works with us. So you're like giving God something to work with here. And it just so happens that it's, it's the story of Jesus. So it's pretty good stuff to work with. And you're going to discover over time that you're going to sense something else kind of at work, bubbling up in your consciousness to the point where you might even someday be able to say, I felt like God said blank, uh, like Paul experienced. So that's my encouragement and your own personal connection uh, stuff with God. So let me just walk you through some things that I see here. Uh, The first thing it's, this is kind of a mind-blowing story on a lot of levels, because Jesus, who grew up in this town, uh, goes back home. And usually when you think about going back home, you think, "Oh, well, he's got home court advantage. If he did amazing things on the Sea of Galilee, how much more are we going to see in Nazareth? I mean, we know this, right? Uh, you good, good Giants fans, good Warriors fans, good Niners fans even A's fans and (laughs) maybe Raiders fans, even, you know, that when you're in your house, there is an energy that's going to come for you and work with you. And so if, if we didn't know better, we'd think, okay, well, man, these people have had eyes on Jesus. They probably were so excited that he sensed this ministry thing. And he goes out there hearing reports, man, this is just going to be homecoming. It's probably going to be a parade. Who knows Lines going to be out the door. It's going to be standing room only. And we are going to see the magic show. And yet, that didn't happen at all. He comes back, and it was a total flop. It's really weird. And there are a range of ways of thinking about this, about why the why they were hostile toward him. And one of the one of the commentators uh, mentioned this is actually very interesting, where uh, they shared a story about how some uh, biblical I don't know if it was a pastor or a teacher or whatever, uh, but presented this story to eighth graders. And asked the eighth graders, uh, "Why do you think why do you think the people of Nazareth were upset at Jesus?" And one eighth grader rose, raised his hand, and says, "Well, he was the oldest son, and he just left his mom for a long time, and he was supposed to take care of her." I thought, "Wow, <laughs> yeah," and so maybe there's some attitude toward Jesus. I mean, he had brothers to kind of take care of things, but maybe there was a little edge toward Jesus. Like, what are you doing? You're shirking your primary responsibility. Ever since dad died, you're it. And now you go off on this adventure that we hear about. So maybe that was a part of it. Maybe, and this could mess with your Christology a little bit, and I'm just fine making you uncomfortable. Some of us have this idea of Jesus as when he was born, he like had this halo around his head sort of went with him wherever he goes and maybe you would hear this oh you know (laughs) everywhere he went you know this this sound would follow him you know and we have that idea and it's sort of related to this idea of jesus as perfection you know personified and so we can't imagine anything else we can't imagine jesus ever doing anything wrong or troubling or whatever and you're welcome to hold that if you like Uh, there's some problems with that i resonate more with a very human jesus uh, where he really was a human being, and so that meant he grew up in Nazareth and and did normal human being things, like he was uh, you know a klutzy middle schooler you know who wasn't quite sure in the NBC in between states you know am I a man am I a boy and how's that going to look, and as he went into his teenage years, I think he behaved just like a normal teenager and had all the emotional stuff and all the figuring out who you are and you know control over the world and environment. And I think he probably overstepped here and there in his clumsiness as a human being. So is it possible that the, the people of Nazareth, he comes back now as this expert who has all this wisdom and can do all this crazy stuff. Could it be that they're looking at him thinking, man, I remember when you you were 16 years old, how you mouthed off at your mom and then took the keys to the car and went for a joyride. I remember that, Jesus. You know what I mean? And so maybe other people have these other remembrances. We don't know much at all about the childhood of Jesus. But maybe that was part of their thing. Or maybe they just never really let him become who he was becoming. We know that his ministry started somewhere around 30 years old. And we know that in those times, most of the people uh, died somewhere around 34 to 36 years old. That was your life expectancy. Of course, some grew much older than that. Some died much younger. But the bulk of people, that kind of an average, that's about how long they live. So Jesus has already lived most of his life. He knows he's moving into his senior adulthood at age 30 (laughs) and he has this experience with john the baptist his cousin where there's this visible thing that happens with him where this holy spirit anoints him in a powerful way that changes the course of his of his life perhaps if you can play with me a little bit perhaps that was the day that jesus himself was born again in a new way of understanding he became awake at that moment and started behaving like it. And it took him on his journey around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And by the time he came home, he's comfortable operating in this identity, but nobody in his family and nobody in his hometown knows that Jesus. And because they don't know that Jesus, they don't have room for that Jesus. He comes in trying to come in as a new player in an old system, and the system doesn't like it, and the system reacts. This is family systems theory 101. You have all lived through and and many of these. It happens in your nuclear family. This is the way it works. These are the roles that are played. This is how we are surviving as a family for good or bad. You step out. You start acting up. The system tries to keep you quiet and get you right back in line. That's how it works. That's how it works in government. That's how it works in in education systems. That's how it works in corporate systems. That's how it happens in global systems. It is a system. And when somebody in the system tries to buck the system, the system bucks back. Sometimes the system bucks back because the system should. Uh, I'm Confident that I bucked the system as a teenager <laughs> in my household, and the system let me know these are terrible ideas. And sometimes I listened to the system and honored the wisdom of the system that was there to protect me. And sometimes I did not and paid the price. And for good reason, I I, I earned uh, what came my way. But whatever the case is, here you have a system that is not going to allow Jesus to do His thing. The system didn't have room for Jesus to be the Christ yet. Sometimes we have those systems, and I'm guessing that maybe some of you are living in such a system right now where you know that there is going to there are going to be great limitations on your capacity because of the constrictive environment that is the system that you are in. Some of you are running those systems, and so perhaps one thing for you to wonder today is, how am, I, how am I perpetuating a system that may be restricting somebody in this system from really becoming who they could be? That's a really important question to ask as parents, grandparents. How are you, how are you being an encouragement toward people's freedom and growth? Because the systems don't really like that. I know all about this personally. I'm the youngest of four children in my family. You've heard me moan and groan about this for 22 years now. So let me just do it some more, all right? Every time I go home, uh, some weird dynamics happen. Uh, I am am treated as the baby brother as I have been from day one. It is the weirdest phenomenon. I have more education than any of my siblings. And yet (laughs) I'm the last one to be asked about anything (laughs) about, because what would he know? He's the baby brother. This is the way it is. And it doesn't just stop there with the system. It's a funny thing. Jesus himself was affected. Uh, Their their incapacity to welcome Jesus and who Jesus was and was becoming uh, was not benign on Jesus. It affected him personally. I'm confident of it. I'm confident of it because I've experienced this in, in real live time. I experience this every week. I've experienced with my family. So the weird thing is, I hate the fact that uh, in certain situations it's, it's, it's some better, but in certain situations I'm clearly the baby brother who doesn't know anything. But what really drives me nuts is when I act like the baby brother who doesn't know anything. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You know, It's because I'm getting sucked into the system all over again. And I'm confident that there are parts of Jesus that was like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I've never danced here this before. I've never been Jesus Christ here before. I've just been Jesus, Joseph's son or Jesus Nazareth of Nazareth. I, I, how do I do this here? This is really uncomfortable. I'm not sure what to do. If he was a human being, that had to be the case for him but also I know uh, from my weekly experience that what is happening in the crowd affects the one in front of the crowd. There is an energy exchange. When you're with me, I know you're with me and you add to the energy of the whole thing. We are dancing together whether or not you realize it. When you are not with me, when you're hating what I'm saying, I know that. (laughs) And I know that for at least that chunk of the sermon, if not the entire sermon, it's going to be heavy lifting for me. Because I'm going to have to bring all the energy out, especially if it's a very unpopular thing that I'm talking about. Which is why I was so tired after a year of all that we'd gone through uh, with stuff. There is a there is an exchange. This is not, they are not mutually exclusive. And Jesus certainly certainly was affected by the reception or lack thereof of his home crowd. That's just the way it is. And so Jesus, after a while, I mean, he only pulled off a couple healings, right? This is the guy who's known for this. You know, he's like fast draw healer. You know, he's nailing people all over the place with, with healing. And now he can't do anything. So after enough time, he just says, "Ah, oh, man, this is Ain't happening today. This isn't, this isn't going to be one of our banner days. Uh, we need to move on. So what I see here and something for us to think about, oh, by the way, on that back thing, recognize that the context is affecting you. Ask the questions, how is the context affecting you? Be aware of how your context and your system is affecting you because it is. And then if necessary, follow Jesus in pivoting because it may be time for you to make a move in a more forward, direct, Uh, More forward healing direction that's going to be aligned with what you're about and who you are. Sometimes that means leaving a job, sometimes that means uh, leaving a friendship, sometimes it means leaving a school, sometimes it means leaving a state, leaving an address, whatever. Sometimes, as painful as it is, sometimes it is leaving a relationship uh, which had been so fruitful for so long, but now you're just like, it's just not going to get better and we need to make a decision. Because that's what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine what was going on in Jesus's mind? I'm walking away from my hometown. My own family doesn't get me. And as painful as that was for him, he chose to move forward. And when he did, he took the disciples with him, and he sent them in his name. Really interesting stuff. So I don't know if you noticed when Ellie was reading, but there were some Kind of peculiar details in there, like wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. Why is he saying that? He says, uh, don't take any stuff with you uh, except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. Uh, Allow them to wear the sandals, uh, but not to take a change of clothes. Why is he saying all that stuff? That has to do with living in Jesus' name. He's not just sending them out to do whatever they want to do. So we're not franchisees to do whatever the heck we want. We're not burger joints or coffee shops where now we're just going to go make burgers or we're going to make coffee. You can name it whatever you want as long as you're serving a burger and coffee. We're all good. That's not how this works. Jesus is saying, you're going out as my representatives. And as such, you need to play as my representative, my representatives. You take what is given for you. If you take too much, that is going to restrict your capacity to truly be engaged with them. And the thing on staying in one home, this is a really interesting thing. He's, he basically knows that the human nature is predisposed toward greed. And here's what he's hunching might happen, that they're going to waltz into this little village and the most hospitable person in town is going to welcome them into their place. But unfortunately, the most hospitable person in town is a person with 10 kids living in one room (laughs) with no toilet. And yet, they're the ones who've rolled out the welcome. And so they say, yes, but what if then somebody who's not quite as hospitable, but is an empty nester, and now they have a place to themselves with their own bathroom and all this, the disciples are thinking, Let's upgrade, right? <laughs> we need a good night's sleep, and Jesus is saying, "Don't do that. Stay where you are, uh, because it would be greatly offensive uh, to your host to leave, knowing that you're just going for for better dicks." This is stuff about being like Jesus, and it's just brilliant. I, we got to remember this as Christian people. Oh man, I wish I wish the church. I wish Christians historically. Would have remembered this that we're not just supposed to go out and do the Jesus thing, but we're supposed to do it like Jesus actually did it uh, with his ethos, the whole toward shalom, with shalom, because of shalom, acting in shalom, all that stuff. The world would be such a different place, and the world had, would have such a different view of Christianity. Uh, so, particularly for you uh, who might be driving around with some kind of an emblem or bumper sticker that says that identifies you as Christian. Uh, you might want to make sure you're not flying the bird <laughs> too often or honking that horn too loud because that may be sending a mixed message. So on my way into town, uh, this is uh, uh, since COVID. I think it was last fall. And um, there's some traffic and I'm, I'm behind this. This doesn't matter, but the details are so exciting to know. So it's a, uh, like an early 2000 pickup truck, maybe a Nissan or something like that. And um, I, I noticed this pickup truck. In particular, because it had a really offensive bumper sticker on it, it was basically saying "FU" on the on the tailgate in a in a creative way. All right, and I was like, "Oh man, why are you why are you throwing that out everywhere? Can you come up with anything better than that?" And I was just a little bit put off naturally. as I hope everybody would be. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking to myself, this is the just the hopeful guy. I, I hope my daughter will find and marry someday with. <laughs> You know, wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be lucky if he rolls up in this beauty? And so I'm just kind of noticing that and just sort of frustrated with it and just like, man, that, that stinks. Eh, we don't need more of that in the world. And I'm looking, you know, around and see what other bumper sticker things he's got. And then I look and he's got this license plate frame. And I think, oh boy, I wonder what that says. <laughs> the license plate frame says um, Cold Springs Community Church, Placerville, California. <laughs> which used to be a sister church of ours. (laughs) So naturally, I took a picture of it and sent it to the pastor. (laughs) And I said, hey, Dave, hey, you might want to tell your people when they sell their car, get the tags off, man, (laughs) because you may be represented in a really bad way going forward. So anyway, we got to remember that we are going out in Jesus' name, not just to do the things we think we're supposed to do. You are representatives of Jesus. And that matters. It matters in the way we talk. It matters in what we put out on the internet. It matters on how we treat other people. I know I've been guilty of this, and I know you've been guilty of this. We all have, that there have been some things that, boy, we wish we could, we could pull back and redo, because it just did not reflect the grace of God we've seen in Jesus Christ. Right? And so beware you have been blessed. You have been empowered to go forth into the world and bring shalom and beauty. But remember who you're representing because people notice that. And it could be that the way you behave is the Jesus that people are going to pay attention to far more than what comes out of your mouth. Could it be, could it be that the church capital C, over time, got the message right. They were saying the right things, but the witness of the church has been so off-putting and so out of step with Jesus that that has caused the bulk of our problems. I think so. So I'll let that mess with you a little bit. Well, another thing I thought of I thought it was kind of funny was this shaking the dust off your feet thing <laughs> in my, my in my imagination, I'm just picturing i I like wearing my Birkenstocks when the weather's nice, and so I could just imagine you know the 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 disciples you know getting to the edge of town it's been a tough road, nothing's working for them, and they get there, you know everybody's still at the town center and they're just there like this, you know <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know what are the elders of the town thinking at this point? they're probably like i guess uh, I guess Pete had a a stone in a sandal or something. He's really, he's really stuck. You know, did they get anything out of that at all? You know, I mean, who knows uh, what the townspeople got. Now, maybe it is that they were close enough to say, I'm shaking the dust from this town because you are so unwilling to accept the gift of God uh, that is here for you. Maybe, maybe they did that. Who knows? I see two value adds here in this exercise, though, that is worth our consideration, I think, for me. The first is, there is value in letting it be known to the community that has been too constrictive, that has not allowed the thing of God to happen in its most beautiful way. There is value in saying to that system, uh, this happened. We came in with shalom, grace, love, and we were treated very poorly. And we just want you to know that. Because it's important for you to know that. There are times when we need to put up a hand and say, we're leaving because of this thing that happened. Being very aware that we might not have the whole story, being very cautious about getting to that place prematurely, but there is value for people to hear the why behind the what. And sometimes we do not give that to them. Sometimes people leave friendship, leave relationship without ever giving any explanation why. And the people who are left behind are like, we don't know how to make any sense of it. And maybe you've been that one who've just kind of stopped, stomped off and be like, well, enough of that. But do you realize that maybe, maybe the things that you're feeling, the pain that you're feeling, the anger that you're feeling, Maybe it's absolutely benign on the other person because they have no idea why you left, which leads to the second value add of this, you. When you state truth, when you communicate clearly, graciously, in a Jesus kind of way, what's what and what you've experienced and what you've seen, it is incredibly empowering because there's no mincing anymore. You've clarified the lines. You've said, this is, this is where I'm at, and I can't, I can't stay in this space, this system, this job, this relationship, this whatever anymore because this is not changing, and if it never changes, I, I can't live in this. It's very empowering for us to be able to say that And so the shaking the dust thing, it might seem like the silly thing, but I think there's actually great value to it. And I encourage you to think about that, uh, where you might be needing uh, to make such a statement, big or small. In fact, I would suggest that sometimes we fail to say things early on and the ways that need to be said. And because we fail to do that, our boundary keeps getting encroached, our capacity keeps getting encroached upon until at some point we don't have much of us left. And that's, that's troublesome. And some of you are in work situations, some of you are in relationship situations, that it's time for you uh, to, to shake the dust. Okay, well, the final thing, and then uh, if one or two of you have something you'd like to share, um, you're welcome to do it. I know it's much more difficult in this environment than the fireside. And nobody has to say anything. I'm fine with that. But the last thing has to do with Nazareth, going back to Nazareth. And just, I thought about that. Uh, if we just left this story and didn't know anymore, it'd be a real bummer of a story. Because here, Nazareth missed out on their hometown boy, you know, who made good, who, who became this world changer. And what a bummer that would be for them and for Jesus. But the good news is, is that's not how the story ends. Jesus' own family here in Nazareth isn't buying what he's selling. They haven't really caught on to the Christ part of him yet. They just knew the Jesus. They weren't sure about any of this other stuff and had their own reasons for why they thought it was a bad idea. But eventually they came around. Eventually mom came around. Eventually brothers came around. James, one of his brothers, is credited with writing the book of James in the New Testament. They got it eventually, slowly and surely. It's like a seed that needed to be planted. There was a seed that was planted uh, early in American history before uh, the Declaration of Independence was signed. And I want to talk about three Benjamins, being that this is July 4th, and uh, one of the signers uh, of uh, the Declaration of Independence is one of the Benjamins uh, that is part of the story. But the first Benjamin I want to talk about, who is not on the uh, Declaration of Independence uh, signature list. His name was Benjamin Lay. Uh, Benjamin Lay um, had enough money to get educated so he could read, Uh, but he didn't have a lot of money, and so he made his life on the seas, uh, mainly doing trade uh, in the open seas with Europe and even the Mediterranean. And in his journey, uh, Benjamin Lay uh, saw slavery of many kinds. And when he was in Turkey, he saw Turkish people owning and enslaving French people and English people. And he said, "This is not right." And other parts of the world that he would go to, he'd see people owning people, and he'd say, "This is not right." And then he came across America the American slave trade and heard stories about American slavery slavery. And this is now his home country. And he's saying again, "This is not right. This is not right." Well, he got married, and who he was married to was a preacher. She <laughs> was a Quaker preacher. In Pennsylvania. And they both had similar leanings about how this atrocity of people owning people shouldn't be, and would speak to it to certain degrees. I think I've shared the story once. I didn't share this with the early stories, the early service, so you get a real bonus here. So after his wife died, uh, he went to speak in his own church uh, where his wife was the preacher. And he was so um, fed up uh, with this whole Thing about humans owning humans and what they're what he was seeing before him, and he wanted to speak out again. This is Pennsylvania, right? So there's a northern part of uh, the colonies, and he's speaking against this thing. But he knows he's going to have this audience that's not listening. So before he had that opportunity to preach, he did a little work on his Bible. Not studying it, he actually cut out a middle section of the Bible. Literally, cut out a middle section of the Bible. So it was a chamber, and in that chamber he put, uh, I think it was um, uh, a blood-filled sack of pig's blood, and he kind of, you know, within his own guts and stuff, (laughs) I don't know, but he he literally put this thing back in the Bible, so, and then closed the Bible, so he had no idea that inside his Bible was this blood sack, and so he gets to preaching, and he starts going in, talking in good theology about how people should not own people. That this is a bad idea. And pulls out a knife from his, from his waist and says, you know, God is absolutely against this thing. And he's against you too if you own, if you own slaves and you're going to pay the price. And he stabs the Bible with his knife and blood <laughs> shoots out <laughs> over the people. I don't know if it was effective at ending slavery, but it certainly helped the launderer in town. I I don't know, but he made his point. He also became pretty well known. Uh, He published his own book, uh, which was like multiple hundreds of pages. I think I read it it was like 700 pages or so, all about this subject, about how this this is abhorrent to God. And the publisher he went to, Benjamin Lay, took his manuscript to Benjamin Franklin to get this thing published. Benjamin Franklin was impressed with this guy's knowledge and his worldview. They got to be in friendship together. He was impressed. Uh, He would go visit Benjamin Lay at his makeshift home. After Benjamin Lay's wife died, Benjamin Lay decided to uh, live a hermit's life. He was short anyway. He was like four foot nothing. Uh, The way he's described both in art uh, and in description, think Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) <laughs> really i think i think that's it they talked about him kind of this round guy and with spindly legs that's how they call him so thank humpty dumpty so humpty dumpty benjamin Lake, he he carved his own home in the side of a hill so he he lived in this hill he had a pretty expansive library for his day built in the hill he grew his own vegetables so he was off the grid and all this stuff and benjamin franklin would frequent his place and they'd have these long conversations and on a couple occasions benjamin franklin brought his slaves with him and, of course, that caused quite attention. But Benjamin Franklin and his wife were so taken with Benjamin Lay that in the Franklin house, there was a, an artwork drawing of Benjamin Lay hanging in their home. Isn't that something? Well, years passed. The Declaration of Independence is signed, and one of those signatures is Benjamin Rush, from Pennsylvania. He writes this, the success of Mr. Lay in sowing seeds of a revolution in morals, commerce, and government, and in the new and in the old world should teach the benefactors of mankind not to despair if they do not see the fruits of their benevolent propositions or undertakings during their lives. Some of these seeds produce their fruits in a short time, but the most valuable of them, like the venerable oak, are centuries and growing. So don't lose hope. Don't lose hope if you sowed good seeds. Don't lose hope if you find yourself in Nazareth doing the Jesus thing, the Jesus way. Uh, For shalom, with shalom. Don't lose hope if you're sowing those seeds because you don't know where they're going to take root. You don't know how long it will take to germinate. You're not alone in this thing. This whole thing is a dance with God. You don't know how the spirit of God is going to work with what you've thrown out there. There is a passage that says the word of God will not come back void, meaning that what you do as a Jesus followers in Jesus' name, with Jesus' word, it will not come back void either. So hold on to that steadfast, even if you don't see it. Uh, God is still at work. I love this idea. It's, it's really for older Christians, perhaps, to think about the future, But the idea and the quote is something like this that with your faith, uh, plant a seed of a tree under which you will never feel the shade. Think beyond yourself, longer than yourself, for a future that you will not know. We are in this beautiful courtyard surrounded by these buildings, built by the funds of people most of you do not know but they laid the seed of hope in the ground. And here we are, worshiping all these years later. That's all I got. And I'm curious if there's anything that popped up to you. Again, there doesn't have to be. I know this is a weird environment. I'm trying to figure out that side. Uh, I'll figure it out in time. But anything in particular messing with you or you want to say in this space before we end
1: in prayer? Yeah, Carrie. Hmm. Hmm. so what carrie said is that i do a really good job twisting scripture i think that's
0: thank you carrie i agree uh, she was talking about how um, it's a it's a more positive spin than we often hear uh, about the shaking the dust, that usually we see that as pure judgment, and I'm done with you. And really, it's it's much more nuanced than that, where there's benefit for both sides. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense for Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, <laughs> to then be the representative of judgment, right? It, it, does, it doesn't make any sense. So this this still, you know, holds the mirror, uh, but it's, uh, it's done in a beautiful way and a benefit for both parties. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. Well, let's spend a moment in quiet, and then I've got a benediction for you, which is on uh, the back panel that we'll read together. So if you'd close your eyes, just take a deep breath again. So this whole coming today... Uh, Together in community, in this beautiful outdoor space, looking at this text, thinking about it, we're giving God stuff to work with, to speak into our lives, because it's worth it. And so in the stillness of this moment, I encourage you to pay attention. Is the Spirit of God bubbling up something in your consciousness that you need to hear today? what one or two things seems especially pronounced for you today. And as that comes up, I I invite you to wonder why that might be. And as you think about that, I wonder what might be an invitation from God to you related to what popped up for what, why, and what do you think the take home is in your behavior. So take a few
1: moments in silence for that work. God, we are playing constantly in two symphonies.
0: One symphony of the life of this world that is somewhat, um, at times, many times, unaware of your cadence, unaware of your rhythm, unaware of the key that you are in. And yet we live in that world. And yet we're also playing in this other symphony that is represented in the beautiful song of the birds right now around us. We're a part of that much greater other, that bigger thing, that more beautiful thing than the buzz of traffic. I'm confident, God, that how you are speaking us today, to us today, is more related to that beautiful symphony, about how to live in that. And I wouldn't be surprised if some here today are feeling a call to some action, maybe maybe to begin following you, to embracing you as the foundation of life and uh, accepting the forgiveness, the love that you have for them. Maybe for some, it's concrete action. Maybe for some, it's a decision to pivot or at least to see why things are so hard. I don't know, God, but you do. And so we give ourselves to you as Jesus followers. We volunteer ourselves to you. And maybe we're not ready to make a decision on what we sent you inviting us toward, and you're cool with that. But let us keep an ear open and let us keep our minds open and our hearts soft that we might with time, like Jesus' own family, find our way to following you wholeheartedly no matter where it leads. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to end today on your back panel. There is the benediction, uh, the serenity prayer of St. Francis. So I invite you to stand with me. If you are in uh, recovery, you're familiar with the second half of this. We hear this all the time at Crosswalk, and as groups start flowing back in, uh, we hear uh, the second half um, at the beginning of Groups, and we hear the Lord's Prayer at the end of groups, which is really cool. But let's read the whole thing together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Lord, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great week. Happy July 4th.